0: You can love where you are, you can love where you came from, you can celebrate both, and that's what I try to do with Indiana's Apple Pie.
1: This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I'm a writer and a writing coach who helps women develop and publish their memoirs and essays. But most importantly, I'm a human who's always trying to figure out what my soul is saying. Each week, I'll share stories and tips of healing, hope, and following my heart so that you'll feel inspired to follow yours. We're about to dive into an incredible episode, but just before we do, I want to share with you some important news. We're starting a movement, my friend of women falling back in love with themselves and remembering just how wise they truly are. As part of this movement, I have written a book. It's called Come Home to Your Heart. It is a collection of 28 little life moments that really restored my spirit and then all of these journaling prompts so that you can explore the inner depths of who you truly are and the wisdom you have deep within you and it is available for pre-order i have the link in the show notes and then it'll be on your doorstep in may now on to today's episode my friends For a very, very long time, I have been wondering about how to write a cookbook. I love cookbooks, even though I cannot cook (laughs) because my chef husband is a master cook and I always have a great admiration for chefs, for cooks, for anyone who does really good things with food. And so when I met Anupi Singla, I knew that I wanted to have her on the show because not only is she an author of multiple cookbooks, she has her own food and housewares line. She left her job as a journalist and went into the food world and is killing it in the food world. And I wanted to know all of the behind the scenes secrets of how she got to where she is today. So you are in for a treat because today we have Anupi Singla on the show. Hi, Anupi. Hi, Nadine. How are you? Oh my gosh. I'm so happy that you're here. As <laughs> as you've heard me say, this is selfishly for me and for the listeners because um, I love picking up cookbooks in bookstores and just flipping through them, looking at the beautiful pictures, but really hearing the stories behind the food. And I've always really thought that Cookbook authors have a doubly hard job because they not only have to write all the things, but then they have to test all of these recipes. So I've been curious for a very long time about the life of a cookbook author. So I can't wait for us to chat, but I want to start way, way back And I want to hear a bit about your upbringing that may have started planting the seeds for the life that you have now. So take us back.
0: Absolutely. So uh, I think some folks, when they listen to my voice, they're surprised when I tell them I was actually born in India and came to the United States. I know I was young. I was three, but I came young and already speaking Hindi. So Hindi was my first language. So I would say I always had that one foot in India, and because I had such a large family in India, I was very connected to India. And so when we came to this country, we settled in Pennsylvania, we still always cooked Indian food at home, and I always would visit India as a young girl just about every year and just be fascinated with the food and with all of the ingredients. And often it was funny, I would sit in the kitchen, my parents would get really upset with me because we would visit our family's houses in in Punjab. And I'd sit on the um, on a little stool in the kitchen with the cooks. And I would just like there was it would be like this cold, nice area because it would be colder than the outside house because it would always be warm. We would visit India in the summer months when we didn't have school. And I would just love just sitting there because it would be so cool under my feet with the concrete and the marble being really nice and cool. And then I would eat. I would refuse to eat at the table with my family and I would eat in the kitchen with the cooks because they just had all the good food and they just had seemed to have so much fun. And I would just love that we would all sit on the floor and eat together. And so Growing up in America, my grandfather from my father's side would visit from his little village in Punjab. And as he would visit, he would give me more and more cooking lessons. So I felt that it really came from him that initial desire to understand all these recipes and really understand what kind of food we have in Punjab and then that he loved in his village. He was the true foodie in the family. So He gave me my first cooking lessons that started all of this passion in food.
1: Hmm. And I've gotten the great fortune of seeing some of your writing. And you write about making chai when you were a teenager. I'm curious about some of the early recipes that he taught you how to make and the things that were typical in your
0: home. You know, I always like to emphasize to folks that the indian community is a relatively young community i can actually remember when we could not find ingredients indian ingredients and or indian grocery stores we had one in our in norristown pennsylvania near our home where i grew up and we would make our way over there. But before that, even in the 70s, we didn't have anything. So it was so difficult. Many times our families would actually bring ingredients in their suitcases back from India, like big packages of haldi or turmeric, jita, cumin seed, all of this. We just didn't have access to it. So they did their best in our homes. And the dishes that we would grow up with would include things like rajma, which were, um, I I guess, the red beans and rice of the Punjabi world. It's like this really delicious, fragrant kidney bean curry. And then we would have things like gari, not curry. Gari was a uh, yogurt-based spicy dish with dumplings. And then we would have just dry dishes like okra or eggplant and potato. And it was the eggplant and potato, which was the first dish that my grandfather taught me when I was around 10, 12, maybe 13 years old when he was visiting and my parents were out. And interestingly enough, my mom originally did not push me into the kitchen because a lot of, because I think of a lot of the stereotypes in Indian families of women cooking and she was pushing me into, you know, different professions and then. He just got me in the kitchen and there's a story of him traveling hundreds of miles in India to go look for all these recipes and food. And he would go on pilgrimages. My grandfather would. And somebody in the family, either it was him or one of his um, siblings, came back with a recipe that was a pureed ginger soup. It's called adrak ki sabzi. Adrak means ginger. And we would make it with milk. And now I've actually started making it more with soy milk. And it was the most phenomenal dish. And no other family, I asked them, do you know this dish? They're like, no, we've never heard of it. And so (laughs) it's such Mm -hmm. a unique dish to our family and to our village.
1: Mm, I love that. And I'm imagining you, your mom's trying to get you out of the kitchen. Your grandfather is encouraging the kitchen When you think back to any certain foods that kind of got you through hard times or complicated times, were there any beverages or dishes that just make you think of comfort?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's such a great question. And I think so much of our foods do uh, signal comfort because they are warm, they've got all the spices, they're um Fragrant, but I have to say, the most comforting thing to me is probably um, surprising to most. It's onions. <laughs> Tell me more, please. You know, as much as we and I and I'm gonna say, like, I don't like to paint this picture that somehow immigrant families have it all together. We're like, you know, a fairy tale. You come here, you work hard your kids do well, you push them forward. No, there's a lot of crazy in immigrant families. I mean, first gen, growing up in the States, fighting with the parents, they don't want you to assimilate completely. They're scared. They don't know what to expect. My parents' generation came over thinking they would go back to India. They did not immigrate thinking they would stay, right? That's a big Difference in your family when you raise kids saying, We're here for a little bit and then we're going to go back. Whether right or wrong, that's just the way they were thinking. So we would just have a lot of ups and downs in our household. And also, socialization within the house is different in the States than it would have been in India, the way my parents grew up. So oftentimes they thought we were being rude to them or not as respectful as we could be. We didn't know any better because that's what was happening at school. So there's a lot of this push and pull. And what I found is we eat our Indian food, our Punjabi food with a really beautifully spiced lemony onion salad. And every time, anytime we'd have our ups and downs screaming and yelling in the house at the end of that day, I would make, my mom would make a meal and I would make the onion salad and my dad would calm down. (laughs) because the way he remembered it in India. It was just spicy enough. And to this day, I am known in my family for making the most amazing onion salads and Indian families that don't eat the onions with their meal. I have to, when I go to their house, I have to open the fridge, get the onion, take it out, chop it up. And that's why I always really say it's not just about making Indian food. It's about learning how to eat it. That really makes the difference as well. Oh my gosh.
1: I'm imagining I've never tried any kind of onion salad and now I want to. And (laughs) I'm just imagining that that moment of being able to see dad like kind of calm down it was it was an instant calmer in the house and you brought up something that really is a big part of your story which is coming from India and then This push and pull between Indian culture and American culture, Indian culture, American culture, and your brand is Indian as apple pie. And so I'd love for you to talk a bit more about that story. So they thought that as a family, you would be heading back home. What made you all stay?
0: Well, the reason for coming, first of all, was a level of being able to help their family back home having a job, having some sort of capacity to feed family in a village, you know, back in India, which was part of it, getting a great education. My father went to University of Michigan, all of that. But I think you end up really enjoying where you are as well, and really starting to vibe with the country that you're in. So it's interesting because I say travelers and immigrants are really, you know, you're cursed in a large way because you're never comfortable in any spot at some point. You're always just yearning for what you don't have. And it's funny because my mom, I, I have said to her, why don't you just, you know, move back to India now? She's like, are you kidding me? Then I, w- I would only see Indians all day i was like well mom what's what's wrong with that she's like i love america it's so diverse and so it's just tough and then the other part of it is i think originally why they wanted to go back was just the lack of family here but then what happens is with indian communities and all communities your friends become your extended family because they're the ones that you see every day and you depend on every day so we would go to so-and-so's house for Thanksgiving, we'd go to so-and-so's house for Christmas, and we'd celebrate our own holidays, Diwali, with someone else. And, and then it becomes these ties that are even stronger to a certain degree than your actual blood family, even though they're always going to be family. It's like you have two families all of a sudden. So I think that's what started changing things a bit, although we have a place for both. And I think that's I would say like everyone should certainly uh, navigate life as an immigrant because you should open your heart to both. It, it's not an either or. You can chew gum and walk at the same time. And if you can do that, then you can love where you are. You can love where you came from. You can celebrate bro- both. And that's what I try to do with Indiana's apple pie.
1: Mm. Oh, so much to dive into. So you ended up in journalism. How did that come about? Because I'm wanting to connect the dots to how we ended (laughs) up getting
0: here. Yeah, jack of all trades, a master of none, maybe went to college with the push that I would be a doctor, because that is all our families knew at that time. And I can't even fault them for it because you do what you know, doctor, engineer, lawyer, mm-hmm. and lawyer third. Um, and so I realized that first year of college that I was doing really poorly in organic chemistry. And I'm just going to be honest, I've never publicly talked about this, but I failed my OChem class, had to retake it at Villanova over the summer. That was really tough. Mm-hmm. But realized that my writing classes even the toughest ones, I was excelling in. I mean, I just love writing. I love kind of thinking about things and then putting them all together and thinking about them in different ways. And what I started to push for was a little bit more of a language sort of politics path. And so that's what I ended up starting with. I started by working in Washington, D.C., getting a a job on Capitol Hill, but really writing was what pushed me because I was writing speeches, I was writing extra material for my members of Congress that I worked for, and then got a graduate degree in my language interest, which was Japanese, and then came back and said, you know what, I think I'd like to really pursue the journalism thing. So it's just funny, I just jump into things thinking I can do them, so I gave it a shot, I tried at Bloomberg News, which was a small organization way back. Now everyone probably knows what Bloomberg News is all about. And I just begged them for a job. I said, I've never been a reporter, but I, I, I've written all these clips and I've done all of the extra freelancing. So I made sure I set myself up, hopefully for success. And then I applied and it was a low level job. And I just stuck with it for a year. And then they gave me a shot at reporting. And then when a position came open in Chicago, I took that and then pushed again to get into television. So it was all about the pushing. And that's why I really, to be honest with you, I don't like the stories about folks who have it easy because I've always literally been the underdog with everything that I've done. So I really root for the person in the back of the room. That's kind of like, you know what, I'm not sure how I'm going to do this. I really want to do it. No one's giving me a chance. And I'm always really there for them because I think that it's not easy to be your biggest cheerleader, even like when your family or when your friends around you are not doing that for you. Um, It is nice to hear it, but I think that it's just a tough path when it's not a clear path for you. And it's never been for me because in the Indian community back then, I was literally the first to work on Capitol Hill. I mean, my dad was ready to disown me. You know, that's how difficult those decisions were. Now it's become much easier. In fact, people are really proud when their kids do those kind of things in South Asian families. And back then, there was just so much fighting around it. It's just people didn't understand. They thought that you were going to completely ruin your life because you had done those kind of things. So it's just changed quite a bit. And I'm happy to have been part of that, but I think that that is something people have to understand. The environment has changed around our community so much, but I've had to kind of fight for everything. That's why, you know, I I think that's the thing that's kept me going is just fighting for what I want and just keeping at it.
1: Oh my goodness. And, you know, many people would look at it like, oh, working on Capitol Hill and getting a pretty good journalism job. But you're right. If our parents have a particular idea of what our path should be, then they might not be so happy. And so what, how did you convince your dad or persuade him? What was that time like? You said he was ready to disown you. Tell me more about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I say that you know, kind of laughingly. I mean, obviously it wasn't that he was going to, but there was a lot of confusion in the house. Well, how much are you actually going to get paid? Um, Um, got a, I remember I got a a job from the Pentagon at the time and, uh, it paid quite a bit more than the on-hill job. And it was, I mean, I'm talking about on Capitol Hill was $20,000 a year. And it was like, well, why, what is it? What, what is this going to, do for you? Why would you want to do this? It doesn't make any sense. And that's, I think, the tough part of being the first in these communities to do certain things. And it doesn't have to stop at just the Indian community. I mean, you look at all these other groups of, you know, folks out there, you could even be, and I always say, you could be from rural America and not be of color. It's not just folks of color. I really speak for anybody that is growing up without that day-to-day as your day-to-day um, go-to, like you don't see anyone around you becoming that, how mm. do you know that you can, you know? So I think it was just like, I always said, like I'm from Philadelphia, I'm not always so nice, I'm very pushy. It doesn't always rub people the right way, but I think it was the right type of personality to push for what I wanted because it just wasn't happy. I would fail things that I was not good at. Although I have to say, Nadine, I have friends that stuck with the things that they were not so happy with, not so happy about. So say, for example, engineering or whatever it might be. And they did relatively well. And they were the ones that were praised in the community to begin with. And then they ended up not being happy with their careers and switching out. So I don't know what's right or or not. I just think this is what happened to work for me. And I think even to this day, I'm still kind of proving it out to my family believe it or not you know they don't still quite understand everything (laughs) they do which is so interesting but I think they appreciate it much more but it's hard when you can't put a a number a price tag you know with with writing books even you know you get paid a year I mean so how much is it that you really get paid are you able to make a living it's all these questions from writing and from like why is why is it that you do what you do, and so you have to be your own? I think biggest cheerleader, and I think I just loved it so much. I just love that kind of challenge of it all to see if mm-hmm. if I can do it or not mm-hmm. uh, is really like, keeps me going. Hmm.
1: Hmm. I can relate with you on so many levels. I too failed chemistry freshman year of college. I went as a nutrition major to U of I, and when I got Home over Christmas break, and my parents saw my report card and that I went from being an honor roll student in high school to on academic probation. They were like, So, listen, uh, if you don't get your act together, you're moving back home and paying rent and getting your own job and paying for your own schooling. <laughs> and I similarly was like, What are the classes where I just naturally excel? And they were always writing. Classes, but you're so right in that when there is not a clear path and one that has been laid out before by many other people, it's so unclear that it is very scary for those around us. They're so worried about us and so we have to have double confidence almost. We have to have confidence in ourselves and then extra confidence to go you know what i know that you're terrified for me or or anxious for me but i'm just going to keep pushing for it anyways and i think right away when when we talked on the phone first that was the kind of over the phone meeting years ago like i could sense your go-getterness your tenacity like your your motivation and has that always been something that is in you were you born that way
0: Oh, was I born always with motivation? Um, Yeah. I feel like I just have no choice. Like I always, the way I look at it is I'm just always going to have to work for it. Yeah. And so, but I will say like, I think I I don't want to also portray a false narrative because I think there's been points in my life where I felt that I could have done more that, being motivated for a goal doesn't mean that you're motivated to get through your day-to-day rituals of getting to that goal.
1: Yes.
0: So I am super motivated, but if I don't do the work on a day-to-day basis, you know, and that's something that you've actually helped me kind of realize as well, you have to have daily rituals on writing, parameters on uh, being disciplined to a certain degree. And so I'd say, yes, high on motivation. I want to reach the stars, but I need day-to-day, I guess, uh, some sort of structure to be able to build, I call it, like building a building, like it's like bricks, you know, laying bricks. Every day is a brick, but that sounds so darn boring. I don't, because, you know, to creatives, it's like that day-to-day work. Oh, am I now not a creative? Because now I'm thinking about being disciplined and working, so it's that internal tug, but I think what I try and trying to do much more now is really create tight systems for my endeavors. So if I do indeed want to do X, Y, Z, well, then I have to have a certain level of writing in my week, but then I need to know where that notebook is for the writing. It has to be in a certain spot. For the recipe testing, everything has to be in a spot. So it's one touch. I try to I keep it in my mind, like one touch, one touch, one touch of everything. It's not, I'm not there yet, but that's how I try to manage. Cause I'm managing so many different things. They all overlap, but not too many people create a company that has so many different arms by themselves. And many people write cookbooks. They don't also have a business. They don't also have kids. That they're trying to get through to college. By the way, U of I for my younger one. Oh, <laughs> uh, yay!
1: That's incredible. Yes, you have a million things going on, and I I want to hear more about the the one touch. So let's let's figure out you were in journalism, and then how did you get into the writing of cookbooks?
0: Uh so I have always through. Working on Capitol Hill, going to get my Japanese degree, which was, by the way, in Hawaii. I surfed a lot. Love it. I know we have a connection with Hawaii. You do, too. Yeah. Uh, And then coming back to the mainland and living in uh, D.C., Princeton, working as a journalist, coming to Chicago, transitioning from business reporting to local news, which I just love because I love local stories and people. And then realizing because my husband was traveling and I was at home and and the one thing was through those years, I always cooked, which was Mm -hmm. funny because I never talked about it, but I was the one that people would always make cook for them. And even in DC, in my apartment, I'd always have a slow cooker. I'd always have a crock pot. I'd always have food going. And even in Hawaii, you know, like everyone had rice cookers. I had the crock pot out on the lanai and I was always cooking for everybody. So when I came back and I started reporting locally and my husband was traveling and I was doing the morning shift, it's a really rigorous reporting shift because you're up at 1.32 in the morning and in work by three in the morning. Oops. So with girls, that was just really tough to navigate, like something had to give. And I didn't want their food to give like that was so important to me for them to eat the way my mom taught us. And I just realized like the most important thing to me, like it would hurt my heart to come home and see that they weren't eating Indian food. And I realized, well, maybe I can take a little break and write this cookbook I've had in my head for so long, which was Indian food in a crock pot, because my mom was the original in our family to really start using it. And one of the first, honestly, in the Indian community to mm. start using and making Indian food in a pot because it's typical to slow dumb cooking, they call it in India, slow cooking on a flame, but it's kind of the similar thing because it's just electric. Mm. So I just took her recipes and I started working with them and found a publisher and then started when I took the break, I said, okay, I'm going to write this book. And I just started writing things down and started thinking about it. And I have to say, everyone thought I was nuts. (laughs) Everyone thought I was nuts. And I was like, no, 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 I think this is going to work. And so I just kind of kept going with it and feeding my family. So the goal was feed the girls Indian food as much as they can eat. Will they gravitate and love Indian food? It was, that was my experiment. That's all I did is if the book came out of it, that's great, but I'm going to teach my girls to love their heritage through food. Mm. And that one goal and out of it, out of the project. And then the books came. Mm.
1: Oh my gosh. There's so much heart there. It's a win-win, right? Yeah. (laughs) If, if, if the book comes out of it, great, but you are passing along history and culture via food. And When you were putting together these recipes into the book, talk more about that like kind of one-touch system. What was your process like?
0: Yeah, I I think when you're writing a, a cookbook like that, especially slow cooker, it's really tough because you don't get the finished product right away. And your husband's a chef, you see, you cook on the stovetop and you have things so I would have to wait, you know, all day to see, did this come out okay? So it was a really overwhelming process. So part of the process was being incredibly organized with what was in which crockpot, because there were five or six crockpots going at one time, and then literally notes, sticky notes on every single one saying, this is the change, this is how this is different. And I've evolved my system Whereby I used to actually cook and take notes at the same time, so I had my younger, I enlisted my uh, older daughter actually to type on the computer and type some of my notes in as I was cooking some of the stuff that came later that was not slow cooker but stovetop, and so that worked for a little while, but then I realized that it's hard when you're cooking and you're trying to get on your computer because your hands are all dirty and this and that. So what I would do is now my process is really just. The first shot at a recipe is just free flowing and it's just for fun because I never want to take the fun out of my cooking, which is easy to do when you're writing a cookbook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to do it 10, 15, 20 times. But then I write everything down on paper by hand uh, with a pen, write everything down and then translate to the computer. And then, you know, I have to say, I have to print that out. And Nadine, because I miss so many little things as a reporter, we're used to just a pen and paper and just go the little tiny details are with cooking what really make or break a recipe. And so what I try to do is I follow my own recipe four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 15 times. Even I have a recipe that I'm doing for soup in the instant pot and I just redid it. And I made tweaks, you know, just those little tiny things so I follow my own recipes several times and that's how I catch all of the little nitty gritty items and mistakes and swap outs. And I do it on different days. So I'll do it on a Monday. Then I'll do it on a Friday because then I might read it a little differently. and might think of it a little bit differently. And then the, the last thing I try to do is I have a group of very dedicated recipe testers. I'll send them the recipe once it's really finished mm. and feedback from them on what worked, what didn't work so much. And that's great feedback as well for recipe development and testing.
1: Oh, how do you find these people? Do they just volunteer themselves? They're like, yes. <laughs> Who
0: yeah. are they? Yeah, there are folks actually from my Indiana's Apple Pie Facebook page. I'll just say, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, recipe testers and they'll volunteer. There's a list of rules, like if you're going to test, then you have to commit and mm-hmm. please you know, have everything, you know, whatever appliance we're using, um, slow cooker, instant pot, stove top, and then have access to Indian ingredients. And then you make the recipe within a week. So I find that people who don't make the recipe within a week, it's just difficult to chase them. So they kind of drop to the bottom a little bit and that, that happens. I mean, so no judgment at all. Just you go with the people that are the most active and get back to you. And I'll tell you, the, the feedback is pretty phenomenal. Like, and I didn't even think about it. So with the Instant Pot, putting the pressure valve, pushing it up when you put the lid on to make sure that steam is not released too early, I didn't even think that was something that I would have to include. But then one user said, yeah, I think that that would help me because I'm relatively new. And it made sense. So all these little tiny tips and tricks embedded within, it's not just the recipe, it's the readability of the instructions it's when after an instruction is finished think about when to press cancel on the instant pot mm. those little things make such a difference that's why yeah I don't know if I would wish writing a cookbook on anyone but it, it is the best and the worst uh, project in the world <laughs> oh
1: my gosh yes which then makes me wonder how were you able to find a publisher what was that journey like
0: yeah, so finding a publisher is never easy no matter what type of writing you're doing obviously, but I think in the cookbook world it can be even more daunting. What I did was I first tried to find agents. And I found that like agents, I'm in Chicago but agents in New York weren't really understanding my concept very much and so I got quite a few rejections. Your your face is like, "Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh okay. Uh-huh. Um, makes sense." You get a lot of a lot of rejections. and then I think what helped me was really truly being a writer and a journalist. So I was writing quite a bit for the food section of The Sun Times. I was writing for the Chicago Tribune and these were freelance food articles because I knew that my writing skills were really more in the fast turnaround news and business and it wasn't really in food. So I wanted to make sure that I had, The platform for food. So because I'd done that, one of my former editors at the Sun-Times said, well, I know that you want to write a cookbook. I don't know if you'd consider talking to somebody here in Illinois at Agate Publishing in Evanston. They're a smaller publishing house, but you may have some synergy. So I met with the president of Agate, Doug Seibold, and we just really hit it off. And what I loved is that he saw my vision Hmm. for the book, whereas other people were kind of laughing at it. Hmm. He's like, well, he's like, I really like your writing as a journalist. I know as a journalist, you can meet a deadline. That was a large part of the book writing process was showing that you understand a deadline. You're not laughing at a deadline. You're really, truly serious about getting the book in on time, the manuscript on time. And I think that he felt that the Indian food space, you know, could use this book. And they had a new imprint that was really, had launched at that time, a food imprint. And it just worked. And I have to say, like, for me, it's been interesting selling books without an agent. So I go directly to Agate and I work with them directly. And I really enjoy the process. There's always different lanes, larger publisher, smaller publisher, different sorts of things to think about. I think what I love about Agate the most is they're really flexible with the project. If they like you, they really appreciate you know it being a team effort. There's a lot of communication back and forth with them and I can pick up the phone anytime and reach out to them. And also I feel like they treat all their authors really well and equally. So I think that's a really important thing for me And they were there for me from book one. So I've just kind of stuck with them through this whole process. So my path isn't going to be the same as everyone else's. But what I will recommend is if you do want to get into the writing, food writing space, truly write about food Mm -hmm. first, because there is a different language when it comes to food writing than other writing. And you just have to, it's not that you can't do it. You can, it's just about understanding it. And I think you only write better about food when you cook food and you watch it, you eat it and you see it and you like know every little moment of it. The crispiness, the splatter, when the cumin hits the oil, what it feels like, what it sounds like. And those kind of things, when you can put them into your writing will make you just a stronger food writer. And I think really just a stronger candidate for any publisher that you might want to reach out to.
1: And were there any food writers that you have admired through the years or any cookbook authors that you really love?
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I love so many um, cookbooks and I admire so many authors. I think that um, what you know, what's funny, though, I have to say, Nadine, is through my journey in food, I collect cookbooks but I collect cookbooks that I find randomly. (laughs) I really dig deep to see, is this a book that will resonate with me or not? It's not the name and the author that sells the cookbook to me. So I used to love the Costco book table because it would have so many unique cookbooks on it. And I remember like my two favorite Indian and Chinese cookbooks are just these random cookbooks that you wouldn't even know. Like the title is so generic, really truly have the best recipes for me in terms of like, they work well when I cook them. So I have never been really driven by the author or the title of the book. And I think I will say I am really right now fighting with my daughter about the, my copy of joy of Cooking—that That is my ultimate cooking Bible. And I have to say that I don't probably gravitate towards specific authors and specific books only because I've always cooked. It's like, there's a saying in Hindi, like hot manjo heads, it's in your hand. Like, I don't really cook from a book. Like I have never cooked that way. I get tips and tricks from like, maybe I'll go online and find something or find a book, open it up and say, Oh, I like it. And I'll always change the recipe and always become my own. So I think part of it is I've never really truly cooked from cookbooks, except joy of cooking, because that was the only one that made, you know, Marcella. And I had no idea what that was growing up. So I was like, that's foreign food. I'm going to try that. So I always gravitate through joy of cooking growing up, but there's great authors and great cookbook folks in our own community, Indian community. And I, and I love them all and I support them all, but I just honestly just really cook for my heart more than from another book. This sounds a little odd. I know, but, No,
1: it isn't at all because Jamie, my husband, doesn't cook from cookbooks and how something tastes one time uh, the same dish might taste different another day because it's just based on what he's feeling and what we have in the fridge. And so I and many of the retreat participants that he cooks for uh, were urging him to write a cookbook. And he's like, it's interesting because I don't follow cookbooks. (laughs) He's like, I like looking at them. I like looking at them for inspiration, but I don't technically follow recipes. It just because even I, if I if I try to contribute a dinner or so every every few nights, he's definitely the star of the show in cooking for our family. But when I want to contribute, I'll ask him for tips. Well, how much do you put in here and what do you do here? And he's
0: like, it's kind of by feel. (laughs) so it's hard and you bring up a really interesting point too that that was something that I fought quite a bit in my own writing process and that's something to also talk to him about when he's when he's writing his cookbook we do do these things by feel but now if you're writing a book it's got to be measured out and so those were the toughest like conversations with my mom when I would be like so no how do you actually do this Oh, you just you put in a little bit of that, you put a little bit of this. And we would have these arguments. I'm like, mom, you know, you can't just say little bit, you have to tell me what the measurement is. And then now when she gets recipes from India, she gets into little tips with them. She's like, tell me exactly how much it is. Cookbook. <laughs> you can't just say little bit. You can't just say throw in this. And so it's just fascinating to see like how it'll translate. But you know, you can definitely get to a recipe that works consistently, I think it's hard because it really sometimes feels like it's killing our inner creative to say teaspoon, tablespoon, cup, you know, but at the same time, that's the only way we can share our dish or our knowledge or our art with somebody else is, is by doing that and going through that process. So it's an important process as well.
1: Yes. And how did you go from that to starting your own business, having this whole brand, Indiana's apple pie, having spice lines at Whole Foods, sauces, houseware? Like, how did that evolve?
0: You know, I I always say everything that I do is driven by what I feel like people want and uh, largely by what I would want. So what I noticed early on was when I wrote my slow cooker book, people would say, oh, I love your book. And I'm like, oh, really? Which recipe did you try? Well, I tried the dal makhni. Everybody knows what dal makhni is, buttered lentil, lentils. They're actually beans, but lentils. But I made it with some other bean that I found because I couldn't find the urad dal. And I was like, what? So how would you love the recipe? It's not really dal makhni. So then I realized if we're not offering these ingredients In mainstream grocers, we're losing half the people that'll pick up my book. They're just not even going to be able to connect the dots. And that's no fault of theirs. I mean, why or how can you add in a trip to the Indian grocery store on top of everything else you're doing? And on top of it, a trip to the Indian grocery store is often large amounts of products. They don't sell, they've started to now, but they sell big bags, five pound bags, right? Those are minimums because that's what we use in our household. I'm not expecting you to start cooking makhani every week and using all that product. So it's just by desire and want and and need. And so I started small and I started to figure out spice blends were really bothering me because a lot of the spice companies out there are not representing our Indian spice blends mm-hmm. correctly. In fact, some of the taste profiles are really off. And I started to look at some of the ingredients and they would the ingredients we would never use like celery seed or onion powder. And that's, those are fillers that make the spice cheaper, but that's partially why I think people don't love Indian food. If they say they don't, it's like they haven't had, or they can't make it at home because it's not replicating what they're eating at the restaurant. So that's what I wanted to change. And so I just started with a website and I'm, pretty honest. I started because I think it's important to tell people the reality of what I did. I just started a website on Shopify. That's one platform that I started on. It just I didn't know any better. So that was the one that I went for and they had a side, a retail side. So then I would blog and I would then sell product and I would create product, um, started creating it for my home and then found a spice company to help me and then found a larger spice company to help me and just little by little, started to find other people sourcing and found too, Nadine, I will say it's one of the toughest things to do is to create sourcing for all these products and find, they're called co-packers, to make certain amounts of products. It's a very interesting, well-kept secret that people don't often let you know about. They kind of act like they don't know. It's just interesting to me. So, As you're doing this, you're talking to people that should know, and they're only giving you one piece of the information. So you're working that piece. And then it's like being a reporter. Ah, it all comes together. I'm digging and digging. And I have learned so much, you know, good, bad, and ugly. I have learned so much about where things are made, how they're made, who's like the players, who knew and didn't tell me, and Mm. now realize it, you know, because I think there's a level of knowledge is power and you kind of like keep certain things to yourself and people will tell you the little nugget, but then they won't tell you the whole thing and they should know it. You ask me a question, I'm going to give you the answer, but not everyone operates that way. Some people, so you just kind of hold on to the people that are helpful, that are cheering you on and they want to keep you going. And then you got to realize it is your own work at the end of the day. And it's not easy, but it's just, you need to consistently 1% every day, do more, 1%, 1%, 2%, 3%, just every day, more phone calls, more pushing, more asking, talking to buyers, telling them why you're different, getting in one store, being excited about it, publicizing it. It's, it's not easy, but it's something that if you want to do it, uh, you can, but it often doesn't happen overnight, but there are people that it does happen overnight for. So I'm just not one of those. <laughs> it's just, it's a long road. Well, it's refreshing because it's
1: real it's more realistic to hear about the long road because I find that it's very, very low percentage of people who are overnight success. And even then if even if they call themselves overnight successes, they start telling their story and it's like, Oh no, you were laying the groundwork all along. I think my my biggest thing, you know, when people hear like lines of product at places like Whole Food, it just seems like it almost in my mind is like, oh, robots or some magical creature is getting the product into Whole Foods. Like, how do you even knock on the door of Whole Foods? <laughs> so what was it like g- get breaking down that wall?
0: Yeah, you know, and um, I have to say that I think that was an interesting, really interesting path for me. I always think that, you know, no matter how technical we get, no matter how much technology is around us, truly relationship building is the most important thing in the world. And and I have to say, I had to learn this lesson too, because I'm really fast to be like, oh, that's irritating or that's annoying or move on or, you know. very fast right because just east coast thinking but also reporter journalist thinking you move on from things fast but i think that it's important to just give people an opportunity to fail because if you give them an opportunity to fail and say sorry and come back with things they'll do the same for you like a lot of forgiveness and what i found is just asking and being okay when someone doesn't respond. But then they remember that you were gracious and they come back and they give you a chance. And that's what I thought about with this whole like relationship with Whole Foods. I just started here in Chicago and I started knocking on doors to do classes, free classes. And they said yes. And my contact in the culinary department said, I know you've been talking about this line of product. Why don't you talk to this friend who's a buyer in the store? He'll talk to you about it. And you know, that's your first meeting. I said, okay, cool. So then we would, we sat down we talked and he's like, well, you know, I don't know if we'd be ready to put you on the shelf in a month's time or not. And I'm like, no, that's good because I don't think I'm even ready to be on a shelf in six months. And he's like, what do you mean? Most people want to get on tomorrow. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm just asking you how I can get better at what I'm doing. Like always keep your listening ears on This is what I think bothers me most is a lot of people are talking a lot. And if you just stop talking, hit the mute button on your phone or just bite your tongue and listen, people will tell you what you need to do. But often we're just so like interested in our own stories. Mm -hmm. So what I tried to do over and over again was really just kind of go in and go, well, what is your Indian food section like? What are the the issues that you have, how can I help? Like, what can I do for you? Like, I never went in and said, put our whole line on. I'd always say, well, where are your holes? How can I fill it? Can you put at least one or two things on? Because I know this can help. And then we would slowly prove it out that we would move product. And also some product didn't move. So we would learn and figure that out. Those were not easy learning experiences, but that's the thing is you're going to make mistakes and you have to learn from your mistakes. That was the fun part of it to see what would resonate with people, what wouldn't. One thing that worked that buyers didn't think would work, but gave me a chance was our legumes. So the legumes that you can't find at a grocery store, but you can find an Indian grocery store that you need to make Indian food are now starting people starting to realize they want to make Indian food at home. So we sold four, and now it's going to be eight, To source legumes, and they originally said, Anupi, we sell legumes. I'm like, but you don't sell the ones that are needed for Indian cuisine. Oh, okay, we'll try it because we like you. The likability factor is always important, and so we'll give it a shot. And then it started to really grow. And the other thing is, too, Nadine, I will say it's interesting, and you know, maybe people won't like me saying this, but I think the school of hard knocks helps. You know, I grew up in an Asian family. It was not an easy path. Grew up at a very difficult time, you know, for our community in the U S too, back in the seventies. And I got to say, and worked in a newsroom, you know, when people yell at me, I just think that's just like, okay, I I've done it all. I've been in the toughest newsroom in the country, in Bloomberg news, (laughs) nothing you say is going to, infiltrate like any of this like I'm going to take it it's going to bother me for a minute but I'm going to think about how I can pivot and work this out because I've been in situations where I've had people yelling and screaming at me going into oh you you said this was going to move it didn't move Da, 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 da 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 those are just the realities and that wasn't handled well by that particular person or buyer but at the same time the frustration means I've got to think about how I can do things a little differently but you can't feel totally bad about it though. You want to, you take, take your day and then you get right back up and you navigate it again. But I always say that Bloomberg (laughs) experience, (laughs) 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 which was good.
1: That's what I love hearing when I talk to Heart in the Story podcast guests. It's like oftentimes they talk about their stories and ending up in a very different place than they may have guessed at the start. But then when they really start backtracking and connecting the dots in reverse, they're like, actually, this led to this, which beefed up these skills, which I now use in this way. And I really love this idea of being able to handle criticism or feedback or rejection with not as with not so heavy of a heart like it may bother us yes but can we bounce back can we recoup quickly enough that we can take the important feedback from it and move forward i think so often especially as i coach women writers i see what even just a small bit of rejection can do for them and just shut them down and i really have to push that those Who succeed the most, publish the most, are rejected the most, they're also the ones that try the most and just keep bouncing back the most. So I think it's just helpful for those listening to know that the road isn't easy, but almost to kind of expect it, have a moment, and then move on with the helpful feedback from it.
0: You know, it's interesting that you say that. The first job that I went for in journalism was actually as an intern at the Philadelphia Inquirer. That was my hometown paper. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was just an internship and I applied for it. And the guy who was running the program was notorious. I didn't know this at the time, just notoriously not nice, just was not a nice human being. Towards, maybe generally he was, I don't know, but towards candidates, he was not. He basically told me I was the worst writer he'd ever encountered. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. And I remember just thinking, oh my God, I got rejected from an internship at the Philly Inquirer. This is my hometown paper. I can't even get this. Where am I going to amount? You know, that's really heartbreaking. Um, so I think there's two things, two lessons. One is, sure, like we should not let rejection hold us back. I think it's more important than ever that people who are whatever success might look like talk and your podcast is a wonderful way to do this because I want people to hear that. We also all get rejected. It's not easy, but the other part of it is I think when you're in positions of power, it's truly important to watch your words because Mm -hmm. who is he to say if I'm a writer or not? And I have to say to this day, the inquirer has rejected every push to write about my cookbook. It's just so odd to me. And I remember one friend tried to push my slow cooker book to be covered and the feedback from one of the editors was I just don't understand why would Indian food need to be made in a crock pot? That makes no sense at all and he shared that with me. And I'm just talking about it only and I'm not, you know, citing who it was, but I think it's important for newspapers to also get a sense, you know, we've talked about this in our writing class a sense of get their finger on the pulse of what people are talking about. That slow cooker book sold more copies and it's year one than probably most Indian cookbooks do because mm-hmm. it tapped into the slow cooker concept in middle, small America. So it's like you missed the point entirely. Mm-hmm. You can have an opinion, but I think seeing beyond your own opinion is the goal of, you know, when you're in these positions and especially in a position to decide whether a piece is going to be published or not, not to say it's everyone's choice, whether they're going to cover something or not, but it's just find it so fascinating. That's why I think people should not don't limit yourself by others, limited views of you. Right. I mean, so you got to push and I appreciate everything you talk about because you just creatives are very sensitive people on the inside. We're just so sensitive to this is our work. This is what we do. This is our heart and soul. And now you're saying you don't like it. Oh, you know. So glad you talk about this. I'll never forget when
1: I was working on my memoir and originally I was going to go with a different publisher and they do a review process where they send out your draft to two very underpaid reviewer readers And then you get anonymous feedback from them. And I had written about our infertility journey. And one of the reviewers comes back and clearly is a woman who understands it. And she's like, I could so identify with this narrator wanting something so badly, not being in control over whether or not she could have a child, blah, blah, blah. I get the feedback from the other reviewer. Uh, who called me whiny and every any number of derogatory things and it was clearly a man who had never experienced infertility (laughs) and it was just one of those moments where I was like We have to pick and choose who we listen to. And not that we always have to side with those people who think we're amazing, but it was like, oh, this isn't even my demographic. You know, this is not the correct reader. But it's so good just to hear and know stories like that because it's empowering for those listening to really think about who they've been listening to and whose opinions they've allowed to kind of create the narrative that they hold of themselves as a writer and also thinking about when you are in a position of power, how you respond to other people's ideas and opinions. I want to talk for hours and hours, but cognizant of time, I want to ask two last questions that I kind of ask most of the guests here and they have to do with the title of the podcast. So thinking about hearts and following our hearts, I'm wondering what is a way that you have followed your
0: heart lately? So I really say that I followed my heart through feeding my kids. And for me, it has just been such a successful journey because my girls. I grew up being embarrassed of Indian food, you know, growing up mm. outside of Philly in the 80s, 70s, and 80s. And they take food to their teachers. They're just proud mm. of it and they love it. They love coming home and eating it, they have no embarrassment around it. And to me, that's the biggest love. Is this love of food that I've given them and thus a love of their culture? Mm, I love that answer.
1: And what is a story that your heart wants to tell or is yearning to tell?
0: (laughs) That's not fair. You know, you know the story. (laughs) Uh, I am really hoping that I will write my cookbook memoir one day we've kind of uh, started on this path and to really tell the story of being an immigrant kid from the perspective that it's not easy. You don't even really want to be here. Sometimes your family doesn't either, but you have to also give as much as you expect to receive, you know, Mm. the real back and forth, And that's a story I'm hoping to tell. It's a story of just deep loneliness because you're ripped out of the arms of your family and you're transported thousands of miles away and you're never there for any birthdays, any funerals or anything like that. You have no family around you and you're expected to make it work. And then you do. And I actually want to tell the story that there's so many people that embrace you. There's so much negativity about the immigrant experience in terms of being in this country, I think to me, there are small nuggets of negative, but there's larger stories of real positive embracing of culture and differences that I really want to talk about.
1: Mm. I can't wait for that (laughs) book to be in the hands of readers. I mean, your story is beautiful. Your writing is beautiful. And I would love for you to share with people, you have a forthcoming cookbook and let people
0: know where to find you as well. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, so my website is indianasapplepie.com and it's the same on all social media except Twitter, which I don't really use that much anymore, but it's indianapplepie on Twitter. We couldn't fit the as in there. And then uh, the new book is Instant Pot Indian. It releases in April of this year. And it is going to be a fantastic way to truly fall in love again with your instant pot or pressure cooker and make really, really delicious Indian food in it. We have a chart set up with all the recipes so you can make it in all three different sizes. There's no guessing about scaling. I've written three books, three cookbooks in one, and you can find it on Amazon and I'm hoping all bookstores. And if your bookstore doesn't carry it, ask them for any book, Nadine's books, every author that you love, demand that your bookstores carry all of us. That's the way we get into some of these bookstores as well.
1: Oh, yes. I can't believe the amount of work you put into your forthcoming cookbook. It's like, yes, it is three books in one. You've taken the guesswork out for everybody. So I can't wait for them to get your cookbooks, your lines. Check Anupi out everywhere online and and let us know too what, what takeaways were really helpful from this episode. So Anupi, thank you for coming on today. This was so, so fun.
0: Thank you for asking me. I really appreciate it.
1: Ah, oh, that was so refreshing to talk with a newbie about real life behind the scenes of what it's like to write a cookbook and just what it's like to be a writer in general, the highs and the lows, but above all, we definitely see that persistence pays off. So if you are interested in getting any of Anupi's cookbooks, I'll put the link in the show notes. I'll also put the link for my forthcoming book, Come Home to Your Heart, in the show notes, and you can geek out on all of the books. <laughs> if you are interested in letting us know what really inspired you from this podcast, you can take a screenshot of the episode and then tag us on Instagram, i at Nadine Kenny Johnstone. She's at Indian as apple pie, both on Instagram. You can let us know. Thank you so much, Michelle Rado, my incredible producer for making this podcast amazing. And remember everyone, every heart has a story and every story has a heart.
0: See you next week.